Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You have to learn how to fail. It's, it's funny. It's like, I guess n- none of this is going to come overnight because it's all a process, but you have to learn how to fail. You have to learn how to persevere through failure. But if you're failing, 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 and you're never pushing through it, then you kind of have to take a look at that too, <laughs> right? And say, well, maybe this is just not a good fit for me. And you have to have that honest talk to yourself. So none of that's going to be instant. You know, that's all just kind of learning through experience. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ginger, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you so much for having me today. It is my pleasure to have you here. I found out about your work by way of your publicist. And as we were joking here before, I've grown quite averse to publicists and now I'm making them do much harder work to get on this show. But that's, you know, a complete aside. Um, But uh, I want to start by asking you, what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life? Um, you know, the thing that comes to my mind immediately, and I learned it from both of my parents, is the value of hard work for success. I really saw both my both my parents work very hard in their careers. My my dad was a doctor, and my mother was a lawyer. Uh, and they worked really hard to get what they got. And that's how I knew I was gonna get successful is if I worked for it. Yeah. I mean, how does that play out when you're younger? Because there's sort of this balance of allowing a kid to have some semblance of freedom to explore and discover who they are uh, at the same time, also encouraging them to work hard to do the things that they want to do. Um, I think my parents did a pretty good, especially my mother, did a really good job in supporting that side of me because uh, I am a creative and I went to a very college preparatory high school at the same time. So I was a bit of an anomaly. I was a, the one creative in my family. You know, like I said, my, my mom is, was a lawyer. My dad was a doctor. My other sister turned into a lawyer and my other sister turned into a math teacher. And then there was me, the creative. Um, and so my, my mother was always very supportive that I can make a living from my creativity. So I was encouraged to explore painting, sculpture, just 
you know, the things that interested me. And at the same time, I was held to very high academic standards um, through the college and the schools that I went to, as well as my family. So I really don't, for me, there was not a conflict between the two. No. So, you know, having a dad who's a doctor, uh, a mom's lawyer, I mean, I grew up in a family that's kind of similar. My dad's a professor. You were taught that you could make a living from your creativity. And I think that most people who grew up in families like yours are taught the exact opposite of that. They're taught that, you know, creativity is nice as a hobby, but the reality is, and this is partially true, it's not an easy thing to make a living from. So why do you think that is? And, you know, what would you say to parents who are listening to this about encouraging their kids to pursue creative careers. Cause I can tell you, my dad talked me out of a career in music and I don't regret that. I think he was smart to do that. Um, but somehow it all came full circle and I still ended up doing something creative. Right. I think creativity, if you are truly a creative on the inside and like a, a the kind of creative that you have to express your creativity or you will not be happy. And that's the level to which my creativity drives me. Like everything I've ever done ends up being creative. Um, it, it has to come out or it just does. It's like water flowing downhill. Um, I think there's people that are creatives to that level. I really do where they can't be deterred. Um, my father was not supportive. My father flat out said, you can't make a living as an artist. Flat out. Um, my mother was the one who said, you know, you, you can pursue this. So For example, when I was in high school, my mom let me know that there was art colleges. And I I was like, what? (laughs) There's colleges where you can go and do your art? And that can be your profession? You know, that can be your major? And she said, yeah. And I said, oh, I have to go to one of those, right? But my dad, on the flip side, was saying, you can't make any money as an artist. So if I didn't have the support of my mom, I may have been influenced away from what was my passion. Um, but I think some of it, you know, if, if to answer your question, to speak to parents, I think that you can make a living in all of these things. And, um, I mean, just can, you know, so I think it's good to let your children explore what is, um, of interest to them because they're going to find career paths in those things that are meaningful to them. And, you know, the, you know, we mentioned briefly in, in our talk before the podcast began was that I was a professor for a while, you know, and I, and I mentored or tried to mentor, I think as professors, the best professors can mentor students in trying to find that and find that intersection between your passion and what, what you're good at and what you like to do. So I think that there's time later in life to, to make those decisions that if your passion isn't going to be a living for you, you can find it out later. I don't think it's good to dissuade it when kids are young because there's a lot of people out there that do make livings, make their livings out of the creative arts. And, um, you know, so that would be my advice to parents is, is don't dissuade them. You know, there's time for them to find out later if it's going to work for them. Mm. So your dad, not believing that you could make a living as an artist, what impact did that have on the relationship between the two of you? Um, well, I think one of the third pieces that, that, that in addition to the parent and how they advise and the per- and the child's drive to be creative is probably their own decision making. So with my dad, I th- I just felt he didn't understand me, you know, as many young people might do if the parent's not supportive. Um, and I love my dad. Don't get me wrong. I just knew that he didn't get it right. So I will tell you that a lot of it was just my own stubbornness, where. 
my, my dad said, you know, you can't make a living as an artist. And I said, well, somebody does. <laughs> I was like, somebody's making a living. And I said, well, even if it's one in a thousand, you know, that, that one could be me. And so I think that was the main thing is if anybody could do it, if somebody did it somewhere, then why couldn't that someone be me? So rather than being dissuaded by the fact it was one in a thousand, for me, that gave me hope. Hey, somebody did it. So I'm going to be the one in the thousand. But I think a lot of it is just having to have your own vision on who you are and who you want to be. So I not letting my dad define me, not letting my mom define me in terms of who I wanted to be, having that own determinism. Um, so I, I can't say that it really negatively impacted my relationship with my dad. Um, but it did, it did cause me to get a little bit more, I don't know if I would call it rebellious, but, but more, um, I had to lean in on my own conviction and I couldn't rely on his support necessarily. Yeah. So, I mean, two questions come from that. Uh, you know, when a lot of people hear the odds of one in a thousand, their response isn't great. Why can't I be that one in a thousand? Where does that level of self-belief come from? Um, I don't know. I think I've always been a little ornery. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> you know, I, you know, I'm just, I'm that person, you know, and it, and odds don't deter me, you know. Um, you know, another one is, and this is going to sound arrogant, but I, I, I was very talented from a young age. I mean, when I was six years old in kindergarten, my, my um, kindergarten teacher was saying, save this piece of art. Um, you know, when I was 12 years old, I sold my first piece of art because it was getting framed at a gallery and somebody saw it. Um, I was the only student in the history of my high school, which went from junior from, from seventh through 12th grade to win the art award every year that I was there. Um, you know, so I had, I had a lot to support those, those ideas that, that I could do this. And, you know, I had a lot of feedback from the outside world that, you know, I had a gift and, and I wanted to use it. I had a gift and I wanted to use it. And I really, I think that that's the main thing. Yeah. Well, so, you know, that makes me want to ask you a question about talent, uh, early on in childhood, because I've had Daniel Coyle here who wrote the book, the talent code. And I've asked a handful of people about this. And I remember thinking to myself, every time I came across this 10,000 hours thing, I'm like, why the hell did my parents tell me to practice for 10,000 hours and become world-class at this thing? And he actually, you know, gave me a surprising answer. He said, because those kids actually are the ones who don't end up succeeding later in life. Um, they actually, he said, there's a reason musical prodigies in childhood don't become professional musicians. And I'm curious as somebody who had sort of this early talent and a lot of positive feedback, what you think it is that distinguishes people like you who do actually end up succeeding in the arts from the ones who are also talented, equally talented, but don't. The ability to fail. I, I mean, literally the ability to fail. And I remember being in college, there was a, a friend I had who was a prodigy in tennis. Um, and he was uh, being groomed to go pro. He was just really just amazingly talented. And he had a car accident. And after the car accident, he had to go through, you know, physical therapy and rehabilitation. And during that time, you know, his tennis went downhill um, and he was unable to rally because he was so used to being a success and being better than everybody when he wasn't 
he was unable to rally and keep going. And I learned from that. Um, and what I learned from that is that that's why a lot of prodigies fa- uh, uh, fall away is because no one succeeds all the time. And so when you when you're used to being um, having that early success and those accolades and that positive feedback that probably builds into your self esteem, and then you don't get it, it's really hard for someone who's had early success to push through that and keep going. And I know that when I met with failure around my art, it was devastating to me. But if I had fallen away at that time, then I think that's where you have your early prodigy that doesn't make a successful career out of it because they haven't been able to push through the inevitable failure when it, when failure comes, because failure is going to come at some point. Um, and, and I really, truly believe that you have to push through failure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. 
With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Tell me about the first sort of devastating failure that you experienced, because I know that you, know, you and I were talking before, you went to Pepperdine to study art. Uh, and the thing that I can't help but think about, I remember there was this kid who played saxophone in my high school band, and he got into the Berklee College of Music, and he thought he was like the hottest thing since sliced bread. And of course, when you go to a place like the Berklee College of Music, everybody there is basically a prodigy. Many of them have been practicing since they were you know, 10 years old, he said, you know, these kids come in prepared at a level that is nothing compared to what, you know, we're prepared for in public high schools. And he said, he's like, I couldn't, he he realized he wasn't going to be able to hack it after a certain point. Oh my God. That was me. That was me. Uh, When I went, because before I went to Pepperdine, I went to Washington university in St. Louis and I had a scholarship. Um, I, I was a finalist in a, one of the coveted scholarships that if you were like the main winner, you had a, a complete full ride. Um, but even being a finalist was, um, you know, a, a, a great, you know, it was a great accomplishment. So I was super proud and I was all excited. Right. And again, it was a, one of the series of the successes. Uh, so then I get there <laughs> and like you said, all of a sudden I'm a small fry in a big sea where I had come from a school that, you know, it was easy to be a big fish because it was really a college preparatory school. There really weren't a lot of other artists there. And then I go to a school which there's a lot of really talented people. And, um, you know, some of the professors were even like, how did this person even get the scholarship? Because I'm not seeing this, the talent. And I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. And I remember going into a giant... Um, creative slump. (laughs) You know, that's the problem with being a creative is you can get creatively blocked. And I did. I just, I just, I just went into this creative slump where I started questioning my talent. I started questioning my ability. I started questioning if I, if I really had any talent at all, you know, and, and, and what, what I wanted to do. And I even changed my major for a while. I changed my major from painting to the diametric opposite, which was marine biology. And I and I went down to University of Miami to study marine biology for a couple of years. So I left I left art. I did that thing where people leave art, and um, I ended up circling back around after two years of majoring in marine biology and realized I can't leave art. I love it too much. I love the creative arts too much. I have to find my way back to it. So I circled back around. I changed my major back to painting, um, and that's when I went to Pepperdine. So Pepperdine was actually my third school. So I bounced around trying to find myself when I was younger, you know, and I really had a lot, I have a lot of compassion for young people as they go through those college years and they're trying to find who they are and what they want to do. Um, but I found my way back to the arts. And at that point I just pushed through that creative block. And I had, I saw those same questions when I went back to the arts, but, um, I just, I just pushed through it probably because I found that if I wasn't doing something creative, I was, miserable. You know, I mean, I just, I just needed to, needed to do something creative, but I think that the main thing on getting through creative block is just to push through it. 
and it goes back to learning how to fail. You have to learn how you have to learn how to fail. The professors would say at SCAD, they would say, get through all the bad drawings. So get all the bad drawings out, get all the, get all the bad creativity, get all the, get all the failures out and fail your way to success. And that's how you learn how to fail is you just, you realize that it's part of the process and then you don't fear it anymore. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't cause you to creatively block anymore when you know it's just part of your process to produce bad stuff. And you just got to get that bad stuff out. And then the good stuff will start coming out again after that. Yeah. No, I mean, I always say great creative work is basically shoveling a mountain of shit to find an ounce of gold. Yeah, exactly. So I think all creatives figure that out eventually, but you know, while you're trying to figure it out, it can be, it can be tough to process. Yeah. Going to multiple universities as an undergrad, I wonder what that taught you about navigating human relationships, human dynamics, because that's that's an unusual experience, even for people who I've interviewed who all have sort of nonlinear paths. They zig and zag a lot. But I mean, yours, you know, starts zigging and zagging pretty early in life. You know, three schools you know, before you finish college is probably not normal. And I'm wondering uh, one, what that taught you about, you know, human relationships. And I know that you mentioned your professor. So I'm curious like how that impacted your perception of, of education in general. Well, those are really, there are two, those are, there are two questions there. So I'll, the first one is to be perfectly honest, I'm not sure, you know, that's a good question and one that I hadn't really thought about. So I think that at that young age, it was more socially, I was more, you know, more about your peers at that time in your life. Um, and I do think that bouncing around in different colleges made it challenging to make friends in the end. Like in the beginning, you know, when, when kids go to school and everybody's a freshman, you're all in it together. But when you transfer in and everybody's sort of made their friendships, it made it a little harder. So I ended up making friends by the end of it. I ended up making a lot of friends outside of the campus. Um, and a lot of, you know, friends that I met, um, through, through some groups and communities that I was in, you know, off campus because I was on campus with freshmen. And by that time they were 17 and I was 23, which, you know, it seemed like a huge difference at the time. So I had a lot of friends that, um, yes, yeah, so I think that was part of being nonconformist too. I mean, one of my best friends that I developed at that time was, um, someone who became a father figure to me. He was 55 years old when I was in my twenties and he ended up walking me down the aisle when I got married and he passed away this past year, but he was, he was a dear friend of mine for all these years. And, you know, I cherished those friendships and they were sometimes outside of the box um, and I learned a lot from them. Um, so for that, in a, in a way, I'm I'm grateful. Um, now, the second part of the question, can you? Yeah, it was bit? kind of a, a vague question. I mean, you know, having now been a professor, like you know, when you've gone through all these different institutions, I mean, how did that shape your thinking uh, about education in general? Yeah. Well, um, as we mentioned before the the podcast began officially, was I was a professor for a while before I. Um, did my my foray into an entrepreneur. And as a professor, one of the things that meant a lot to me was actually preparing these um, young men and women for the real world. Uh, I had gone to a few colleges and when I graduated, I did still feel woefully unprepared for the real world. Um, and I struggled when I got out because of that. And so when I was a professor, I was always thinking of what these young people really needed to succeed um, and how could I teach it to them, whether that made me popular with them or not. So I was a tough professor. 
uh, I wasn't always a popular professor because of that. I, I was tough but fair. Like I, I said, I said, I always want you to get an A. I said, but you have to earn your A, <laughs> you know? And I was, I was known as being rather, rather tough, but it was because I knew what it took to succeed um, out there in the real world. I knew how hard it was that what they were going to try to do. Why do you think that so few educational institutions you know, don't actually do a good job of preparing people for that? Because I can tell you, I went to an elite university and I'm with you. I felt woefully unprepared to navigate the job world or life in general. Like, I don't think that you walk out of college knowing how to navigate adult life. It's kind of just trial and error and you screw up a lot of things. You hopefully learn from your mistakes and, you know. Uh, don't make the same ones again, but that's a really expensive way to learn, especially yeah. when time is, you know, your most limited resource. Um, you know, that's a hard one to answer without seeming critical of some of the professors that I. I don't have with. a problem with you being critical of the educational system at large <laughs> or even professors. So you're free um, to criticize. I think it's the ivory tower, the problem of the ivory tower. Um, you know, it's, and, and what a horrible, but this used to offend me as a professor when they said those that cannot do teach, I don't agree with that at all. That used to, you know, upset me quite a bit when I was a professor because, but, but, you know, there may be some truth to that for some, I don't know, you know, it's not necessarily that they can't do those that can't do teach. It might be sometimes there's those that are teaching that haven't done. So in other words, (laughs) that's the problem. Um, maybe they could, but you know, if I think if you go straight from grad school and become a professor, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I think that you've missed so much. So I went, I was out in the working world, you know, I was, you know, that's where we could go to where I, you know, I was at image works working in the, in the film industry, learning, you know, what it took to be successful in that arena. And then from there, I became a professor and taught these young people that were wanting to get into the, the world that I had just left. Um, and so I had practical knowledge on what it took to succeed. I don't think I could have helped them anywhere near as much if I hadn't had that practical knowledge. Yeah. I mean, I always wondered, I was like, how is it that there are business school professors who've never run a business or worked in one? Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I can't speak to others, but I do know for myself, that was what I was teaching out of. I, I was teaching out of my experience. That's what I knew. Yeah. Well, speaking of your experience in the film industry, let's talk about that because I mean, of all the arts, I think the one that is probably the biggest bloodbath of all is the film industry. Uh, And I only know this because I remember going to Pepperdine with the intention of wanting to work in media and entertainment. My dream job was to work in programming for a television network and choose what went on the air. Funny enough, now I get to choose it and create it, which is what I wanted. You know, so in a roundabout way, I actually do get to do this thing that I set out to do. Um, But I got a rude awakening because I remember doing about a half a dozen informational interviews and I realized I was like, wow, nobody wants to hire an MBA to do creative work in the entertainment industry. And I'm 30 something years old. I don't have the luxury of working in the mailroom at William Morris. And I know it doesn't matter what the hell your background is like you could have a Harvard law degree and apparently you still start in the mailroom. Mm-hmm. Well, I worked in post-production. So um, I worked doing um, something called visual effects. Actually it could be full, full CG, but computer animation. So very popular in the theaters now. So it could be anything from full computer animation, like, um, uh, you know, I don't know, you name it, Encanto, which is a, the, the recent one that my kids are loving. 
uh, you know, that's full CG, or it could be visual effects, which is part film, like actual footage combined with computer animation, which could be anything like, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what some of the good ones, like the Star Wars were like that, but those, of course, those were very early. By the way, they redid all those. Um, that was practical effects, but we used to work on the computer. So that is behind the camera, um, our post-production. So it's a little bit different than, than what you're talking about, but, it, but that world is a combination of creativity and hard work. Um, no one stuck around that didn't have an amazing work ethic. So I think that there's a little bit, I've met people who had a little bit of the wrong idea about working on movies, um, that they thought everybody partied and (laughs) (laughs) bought into the, the, the Hollywood glam a little too much. And, um, I'm sure there's some actors, famous actors and actresses that, that maybe have that lifestyle, but, but a lot of it is a lot of talented people working hard. You know, that, that might be the one, the one star that, you know, gets to show up on set drunk, but that's, that's, uh, that's just one person out of hundreds that, that bring that, that movie to life. And, um, yeah, just a lot of talented people with, uh, really strong work ethics, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, I very distinctly remember I had two friends who are surfers who were both, um, computer graphic artists, you know, working on different films. And I remember going over to one of their houses and he was showing me what he was doing on the computer. One, I mean, his average day was anywhere between 10 to 13 hours. And when he showed me the level of detail that goes into something like a Marvel superhero, I was just like, wait, I was like, he's like, this is a fingernail on some like character. And he's like, it takes, you know, 20 hours to render a fingernail to get it to the level that you see on screen. And I'm like, holy crap like really he was like yeah he was like i mean and he worked literally from morning till night every day that was my life right there i mean we would do things where the highlight like the specular highlight in the eye of a digital character would be scrutinized as its own pass um i mean that level of detail yeah so there's a certain level of perfectionism which goes into the high-end feature film uh, so when I arrived at uh, ImageWorks, which is where I learned most of what I knew, I learned on the job, but there were two things that played well for my personality with that career path. When One is I was a perfectionist, and two is I was a work, workaholic, you know, and I used to think those two things were compliments. I was like, of course, I, I work hard and have high standards, but mm-hmm. I really do need to have those two things to make that career a good fit for you because you're going to be working crazy hours and the standards are very, very high. Yeah. So, you know, other than sort of the work ethic and perfectionism, I mean, like what separates the people who can last from the ones who don't uh, in, in that industry. And so, and the other, this is just out of morbid curiosity because I absolutely love movies. I mean, by the time I see Tony Stark on the big screen, like what has gone into making that happen? Oh, I mean, that is not a short answer. We need, we need two more podcasts. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I mean, it's a very long, there's a long process. It's a set process. Um, it's a, it's a process that continuously evolves for, for computer animation because the technology is evolving nonstop, uh, which is why the aesthetics uh, and the end result get better and better and better. But I mean, the process starts with the story. And I, I really can't go through all of the steps, but it starts with the story. And, and I, I think that 
that's one thing that you mentioned that you really like is a good story. Um, and from there, the visuals are ironed out. And, and typically there's like a storyboard and then there's a group of people that, that work through the visuals and there's look development that happens where, you know, everybody figures out the, the color palette and there's just, there's many steps that go, go through and they all involve different types of people, you know, so you, you have animators, you have, you have uh, the technical programmers that are do, doing the nuts and bolts part, you have modelers who are doing the 3D sculpting, um, you know, look development, which is the area I was in, um, color and light, editors, you know, all the way through sound, you know, so that, that's the thing about working in the movies, which I really liked, is it takes a team of really talented people with a variety of skills. And I, and I really enjoyed that because I had the utmost respect for all these people that worked on these projects with me because they were able to do what I couldn't do. But together, we made something pretty impressive. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. 
We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. So when you see the end result of your work on a big screen, describe that feeling to me, because I'm guessing there are probably things that are so small and detailed that you actually don't see them on the screen, but you do see the final product. Well, when you've been working in it, you kind of do see all those little things, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, oh, there's a matte line, you know, but um, which is a dark line around something. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, you, hopefully you feel pride, you know, if you've done your job well. Uh, and hopefully it doesn't leave your hands unless it, everybody's signed off on it. And um, so usually you feel good about it. You know, every now and then there's something where you're like, oh, cringy. I, I, you know, <laughs> that one got pushed out and I wish I could been taking care of that. Or, or oh, my, my, my supervisor sort of pushed me in this direction and, and I was never happy with how that ended up. But, but that, I would say, is the exception rather than the rule. Most of the time, you know, it, it's, it's a good feeling. You know, it, it was a lot of fun working in the film industry. I, I, I will say. Okay. So I, I do want to briefly touch on the storytelling aspect of this, because as you you know alluded to, everything that I look for starts with a story, because I think that that's the foundation of a good podcast, but I think that's the foundation of all good art is a story. And you know, given your background, I wonder what is it that creates emotional resonance in stories that keeps people captivated uh, to sit in a theater for two hours and just, you know, not let anything divide their attention. Cause there are very few things in my life where I feel that my attention is just completely absorbed in the thing that I'm doing. Movies are one of them. When I watch a movie in a theater, it's like, I've basically you know, been transported into another world. And for two hours, I'm just captivated. How does that happen? Well, there's an art to, to story, which has been studied. And, you know, I mean, to talk about it is a little, almost a little, it's not cliche, but it is, I would consider tried and true where you need to have the conflict to engage someone's, well, the Western storytelling. There is, there is actually some storytelling that doesn't involve a conflict, but typically there's some sort of challenge. Um, you know, and so that's sort of the, the basis of a good story is some sort of conflict that needs to be resolved. Um, but I think that the stories that engage people at you know, there's not really a formula for what kind of story is going to engage someone. So for example, um, I think leaving Las Vegas was a movie, you know, it's, it's, was like 20 years ago or whatever, but it was really, really popular at the time. And I, I walked out of the theater on it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think I've ever walked out of the theater. Although the one movie I wish I had walked out of the theater in was Waterworld because I think it's the biggest piece of shit the movie industry has ever made. A lot of people didn't like that. Yeah. A lot of people didn't like Waterworld, but, um, yeah. Oh, poor Kevin Costner. But anyway, so yeah, I walked out on it. You know, it was really, really popular. A lot of people loved that that movie. And I literally walked out of the theater on it. And so it's hard to say, you know, there, I don't think there's a formula for a great movie per se, like other than, yeah, there's a classic story arc. But I think that good storytellers capture people's emotions. But I can say what makes a great movie for me is one where there's some sort of growth and change, you know, or some sort of insight that I can relate to. But I, so I do think that movies need to be relatable for people, but at the same time, you know, there's always a place for the lighthearted comedy. You know, you're not really going there to be emotionally educated. You're just going there for a good laugh, you know? So that's why I say it's, I don't think there's one formula. Um, 
And there's there's a place for all kinds of movies, you know, from the lighthearted comedy to the, the serious drama to, you know, it just depends on what kind of floats your boat. But I think in all cases, you know, if they're not there just to make you laugh, which is takes your mind off things, you know, a lot of good movies are ones that people can relate to on some level. It engages them on some level, their heart gets engaged. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, you remember you asked me before what I look for in podcast guests and I always tell people if there was a formula to it, then it wouldn't be unmistakable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so. So speaking of conflict, uh, what prompted you to leave the film industry if you loved it so much? Uh, yeah, I did love it, but, um, I, it, as you noted with your friend, it's, it's, uh, crazy hours and I wanted a family. Uh, that was really, I, I, I had some coworkers that had families and, you know, there's some realities to working in that industry. You know, for example, one of my coworkers, um, you know, they, they had a child at home and the child was, I don't know, maybe four or five, you know, young enough to not three, you know, old enough to be talking, but not, not old enough to really know what's going on. And he goes to work and the child says, oh, are you going home now, daddy? Because they were home so little, they thought that their parents' home was the workplace, right? Um, you know, there's another one where a, a different coworker, you know, his, his daughter, who was a young teen, he had to work Saturdays because we were, we had, you know, we were in crunch time and she came and sat next to him while he worked in the office on a Saturday just to be able to spend time with him. So I, I wanted a family and I wanted to be able to know my kids. I didn't want them to not know who I was because they, because I was gone so much and especially as a woman. Um, and so I chose to leave that profession so that I could um, have my two wonderful kids and have time with them. So figuring out what you're going to do next, I mean, after you've you know established a foundation in this career, clearly good at it, uh, what did that process look like? Well, um, once I had kids, and anybody who's got kids is probably going to attest to this, my decision, all my decisions revolve around them. I mean, they're always, they're always, a, if they're not, they're most of the time, the decision, the, the deciding point of whatever I'm doing. So in other words... They're always factored in, but usually it's because of them. So what I chose to do after that is I went, that's why I went into teaching (laughs) because, you know, teaching was the one career that I could do that, you know, when they were in school, I was in school when they have summer, I have off, I have summer off when they have Christmas. I, you know, the breaks may be a little different as a professor versus, you know, their, their elementary and middle and high schools, but it was going to be a lot more time than I could spend with them. And so I would, you know, finish up at one thirty, two o'clock with my professorship and I would come and spend time with my kids and I would put the kids to bed and then I would stay up till midnight finishing my work. So, you know, I, I would do just about anything for them, you know? you know. So one thing that I found when I was talking to a lot of our listeners, particularly ones who were parents, I was doing research to kind of understand what their big challenges were, especially when it comes to, doing this creative thing that they want to do, a lot of them felt guilt around prioritizing this thing that they wanted to do because it felt like they were neglecting their kids by doing this thing that made them happy. And I'm just curious as somebody who, you know, has just said that you make almost every decision based on your kids. Like, what do you say to those people? 
Um, I wouldn't be able to give them any advice because I didn't, I didn't go that route. I actually, I actually put my kids first for about 12 years and then now they've gotten older. So then I sort of, I've left being a professor to, to be an entrepreneur. And so now once again, my, my days are, I mean, I'm work, I work all the time, you know, but I waited for them to get older. Um, and I don't have an answer for that. So for example, when I was a professor, I put my kids first and I, and I felt I was put myself out to pasture a little bit. Like I knew I had all these skills and talents I wasn't using and I, but I did it for them. I did it for my kids so I could be there for them. But then once they got older and I'm still, you know, young enough to go on with my, I have plenty of working years left. I said, okay, I want to push myself some more. So once they got to be like 12, 13, 14, you know, now, now I'm launching, you know, I'm, I'm off doing my own thing and I'm working these crazy hours and I feel the guilt. You know, I've, I've, I suffer from the guilt. I've, I suffer from, you know, that time that, gosh, I wish I could spend more time with, with my kids. Um, even though they are older and they don't need me as much, I still wish I could be there with them more. And, um, you know, I'd love for somebody to give me an answer to that. Cause I don't, I don't really <laughs> do it. <laughs> so if you, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stay posted for, for future podcasts where you ask that question. Maybe Fair enough. Well, I, I appreciate your honesty about it. Um, so leaving your job as a professor and deciding to become an entrepreneur, I mean, obviously there are numerous variables that have to be taken into account. Uh, first off, you know, figuring out what you're going to do is one of them and then deciding that that's the thing you want to do, but also, you know, integrating all the experience of your past. How did, first off, how did you decide on what it was that you wanted to do next and what prompted you to decide that, okay, now is the time. Yeah. So as I noted for a long time, I really enjoyed teaching. First of all, I want to tell you that I, I did and do really enjoy helping other people. Um, I was a tough professor, but I was tough because I felt like that was what I needed to do. Like I felt I would do the students a disservice if I wasn't. Um, and that's why I was a tough professor. Cause I thought that that, that was the information they needed. Um, whether the students always liked it or not. But I did at the same time feel that I had so many skills and abilities that I wasn't using. And I mean, I knew that I had so much more that I could offer. So after my kids got older, I wanted to do two things. One, I wanted to use my skills and abilities more because I truly believe those are put in us so that we can be of service to the outside world. That's how we plug in. We're interconnected. Um, And for two... You know, since they were older, they didn't need me as much. Uh, you know, I didn't have to be home home with them as often. They're getting more and more independent. But the main thing is, I, I wanted more control over my financial future. And as a professor, I didn't have that. So, uh, thus, my foray off to entrepreneurship. Because as an entrepreneur, I can control my financial future. Now, that's a double edged sword, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was going to be my next question. You kind of yeah. read my mind. Yeah, it is. It's a risk. You know, so you have to be willing to take risks. And that goes back to what we talked about before, which is, you know, that, that believing in yourself. If you don't believe in yourself, you're not going to try this because it is a huge risk. Um, and so it takes, uh, it takes some courage and it takes uh, self-confidence um, and then it takes a lot of hard work. Um, but I believed that I could provide for my, for, for my kids more. So ultimately they, they were the genesis for that decision that, that if I would, would go out on my own, that I could better provide for them. Um, and so that's what I did. 
Okay, so I, I want to dig deeper into that because a lot of people would probably believe the exact opposite, that if I go out on my own and do this thing, I actually would be worse off in terms of my capability to provide with my kids because of the risk involved. So uh, first off, if people don't actually have this self-belief, is that something they can build? And if so, how? Um, I think that it can be built, um, but I think that would be a journey. Um, because self-confidence isn't, isn't in Lipton soup, add water, you know? Um, and if you're struggling with it, I think surrounding yourself with people that believe in you, um, but also probably, you know, do, do some good inventory of your skill set so that you can take a look at what you're bringing to the table, honestly, and, and you're not, you don't feel like you're flying on air, you know, with, with nothing really to hold you up. Um, those would be good places to start. Uh, but I do think that one of the, the key ingredients is people who believe in you that are close to you. So surround yourself with people that believe in you and, and they, that little expression stick with the winners. I, I really do believe in that. Um, take, take note of people that have done what, what you want to do, um, get advice from them, continuously learn. Um, because there's one thing is even though I have a lot of confidence in myself, I absolutely don't do this on my own, you know, and that's the thing. Cause if I tried to do it totally on my own, I, I do believe I would fail. Um, you know, con- constantly learning from other people, um, constantly growing and changing. Um, I think that's really key. Yeah. So one of the things that you said before we officially hit record here was that, you know, all innovators have, you know, a healthy level of ego, but it's also backed up by something. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there are a couple of places where you often see people who have this sort of healthy that level of ego where it's backed up by nothing. Uh, why do you think that happens? Um, I think that, you know, there has to be a reality check time. So, and that's tough. That's the hard truth, you know? So um, it goes back. It's interesting because y- you asked about the, the, you know, what I do now for a living and, you know, how is that a culmination of my life? But I, your question kind of touches on it. So when I was a professor, which I go back to, I used to talk to the students about that intersection between what you love to do and what you're good at. And you have to find that sweet spot because there is plenty out there that you may love to do. And even again, you might have an ego around or say, oh, I can do this. But the reality is you have to put it to the acid test, you know? So if you if you're failing, you have to learn how to fail. It's it's funny. It's like I guess n- none of this is going to come overnight because it's all a process. But you have to learn how to fail. You have to learn how to persevere through failure. But if you're failing, 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 and you're never pushing through it, then you kind of have to take a look at that too, <laughs> right? And say, well, maybe this is just not a good fit for me. And you have to have that honest talk to yourself. So, and none of that's none of that's uh, going to be instant. You know, that's all just kind of learning learning through experience, I think. Yeah. Well, I think that in my mind, the self-help world and sort of, you know, personal development is notorious for encouraging people to do things which they have no natural aptitude for. Um, And it creates sort of this delusional optimism. So I I had a mentor who used to say, you know, he was like, you know, people focus on the possibility of being able to do something, but they completely ignore the probability of their success. And the example he's like, you know, you and I could compete to, to, you know, go into the Olympics, like we could potentially do curling. Um, And he said, but the, uh, the probability that either of us will ever make it to the Olympics are pretty much zero. And I always say, you know, like I'm a scrawny Indian person, no matter how hard I worked, I'm never going to play in the NBA. It's just not going to happen. And 
like, I think that there is like the idea that genetic determinism matters really pisses people off, but I hate to say it. I think there's a grain of truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to, just because you're passionate about it doesn't mean you're going to be good at it. And that is the heartbreaking truth. And I dealt with that a lot as a professor, especially I worked in uh, with a lot of animators and animation is really popular. So there was a lot of people that would come in and they wanted to be animators. Oh, I want to be an animator, you know, and they had no talent. (laughs) It is heartbreaking because what do you do? You know, how do you like tell them? And the best way you can tell them is to give them a poor grade. I'm so sorry, but it's the truth, you know, because they have to, if you just shuffle them along and pat them on the head, you're doing them a huge disservice. Um, So I think it's important for people to kind of see that, but, you know, I do think that there's going to be something that I do think that there's a sweet spot for everybody. I, I don't think I, maybe I'm overly optimistic on this, but I don't think anybody on this planet is cursed with, you know, having no aptitude at anything that they like and having no love for anything that they're good at. I think that if you search for it, you're going to find it. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, you basically said, you know, the way you tell people that they don't have any talent for something is, you know, by giving them a bad grade. (laughs) I'm curious if you had students who were open-minded enough to recognize what, you know, they were getting from you in terms of feedback and, make a shift and, and you know, how you have a conversation with them that actually encourages them to find something they're good at versus discourages them, you know, to give up completely. Well, I mean, I think that say, if you're talking with somebody who's in that searching mode, the best thing you can do to, to be positive rather than negative is just encourage them to search, you know, and, and encourage them to use their time wisely to keep exploring new things um, because that's how they're going to find the right thing. So rather than just focusing on, you know, what they're not good at, encourage them to explore and, um, and exploring is fun, you know, so go out, explore, see what's out there. It's going to hit, you know, and just make it more of a positive endeavor. I'm curious. I mean, do you have any students who, when you kind of pretty much make it clear to them, you have no natural aptitude for this thing that resisted that idea or really pushed back on you? And do you have any who proved you wrong? Um, yes. And yes. So, but, but first of all, I would never, me, myself, I would never tell someone they have no natural aptitude. One of my favorite uh, movies is the princess bride. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't know if you know the story. I I forget the guy who wrote the script, which is, uh, I I should look it up if I knew I was going to be talking about it, but he was actually told he had no talent at all. That is such one of the best stories of all time too. Yeah. It's awesome. He was literally told, don't even bother. You're, you're, you're terrible. You, you'll, you know, you just forget it. Just forget all about it. And thank gosh he didn't. So I would never tell someone, you know, even if I thought that they had no aptitude, I would never tell them that because maybe there's stuff I don't know. Um, all I'm going to do is give them an assessment for whatever they did for me. That's it. I'm not going to tell them where to go after that. That's for them to decide. Um, and I can't really even predict if I'm right or wrong. Seriously, because I think that you should... Uh, a professor, an educator should always have that humility that they don't actually have the answer. Um, but all they can do is, is provide their honest feedback for that moment or that task. Um, so, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell them that, that they didn't have talent, but, um, or, or aptitude, but I think that, um, people kind of figure that out on their own eventually, um, because people get discouraged with failure. So for example, if they, if they are going through multiple things where they're, they're really just not seeing that success, they, they, people do tend, tend to kind of figure that out on their own. Yeah. 
Tell me a story about a student who proved you wrong, who you didn't think had it, but ended up, you know, surprising yeah, that, you. That was the second part of your question. Thank you for reminding me. So um, I won't say as a student that necessarily didn't have it, but there was a student and I won't, I won't say the name, but um, I'm so proud of him. He was one of my, one of my students that I admired his work ethic and his dedication. Um, and he was, took, took some classing classes from me. Like I said, I used to be color and uh, technical director for color and lighting um, when I worked in the film industry. And then I taught classes for technical direction for color and lighting. And he was in my classes and his early works were, you know, uh, medium, you know, they were medium. They were okay. They, they didn't really stand out as any spectacular work, but as I taught him over multiple classes over several years, he just flourished. He always persevered. Um, he sought out feedback. He worked uh, extra uh, outside of class to improve his skills, and he got better and better and better and better. And recently on LinkedIn, I saw him post that he had done one of the um, most uh, spotlighted scenes for Encante for the lighting uh, at Disney. And he's a, a real success story. I'm very, very proud of him um, through his hard work and perseverance. But if you had asked me uh, that he would go that route in his first couple of you know, projects, I would never have known it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it, it reminds me uh, of what they say about Navy SEAL training, where they can't predict who's actually going to make it through. They always say that you know it's the people often who you don't think will make it through that do. He said, you'll have these guys who huge that appear tough as nails and then you'll have this like scrawny nerdy kid and the guy who's tough as nails cracks in the first few weeks of training and it's the scrawny nerdy kid who gets through the training yeah yeah so i think you have to let people kind of be who you know become who they're going to become and and yeah i remember uh interestingly enough because this is reminding me of it when i was in college myself i had a professor um he really <laughs> lit a fire under me he was um in and not necessarily the good way he looked at my one of my drawings or paintings. And he, he told me that he thought that I would end up working for Hallmark <laughs> <laughs> and two things about that. One that was intended to be an insult, but for two, what's wrong with Hallmark? You know what I mean? What's wrong with if someone was working for Hallmark and that's what they love to do. Now it wasn't what I wanted to do. So he did light a fire under me with, with that as like a push, but at the same time, you know, why poo poo on that for someone who that's a, that's a, a meaningful occupation for him. Yeah. Well, I, I think that that, you know, raises one final question about the ability to take feedback, because I can tell you from having worked with a really, really tough writing coach who I intentionally chose because I knew she would not sugarcoat anything. And, you know, it took me a month before I stopped taking her feedback personally. Like I realized, OK, this is feedback on my work, not on me. But she didn't sugarcoat shit. She was just like literally her comments on my, my manuscript would be like lazy. Try again. Um and my books were a thousand times better uh, because of her. And it took me a long time to learn how to do that. You know, so, for example, I recently asked, you know, one of our podcast guests who's the CEO of a, a really successful startup if he would be an advisor. And I told him, I said, I don't need you to tell me what I want to hear. I need you to tell me what I need to hear, uh, even yeah. if I don't want to hear it. Um, and my first mentor was like that. And I was not equipped emotionally at the time to take that kind of feedback. And honestly, what I realized he had done was prepare me for much higher stakes situations. And I wonder, you know, how you learn to develop the thick skin that is necessary to take sometimes very harsh and critical feedback that is act 
accurate because I see this a lot of creatives. They're hypersensitive about difficult feedback. Uh Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, When I was younger, I was absolutely hypersensitive and I would be devastated if I didn't get, (laughs) even like if, if I got a good and it wasn't an excellent, I would be devastated. And obviously that type of thin skin is not going to survive in the professional world. And so it takes time to develop a thick skin. Um, and I, I can't really say what can help other people other than probably just persevere and eventually you get over it. It does take a healthy do- dose of self-confidence. So for example, um, for a long time now, if I produce work that, you know, when I was working in production, if my boss didn't like, or now my client doesn't like, I actually don't take it personally. And I don't take it, a re- I don't take it as a reflection of my talent. Like I already, I feel confident that I have talent, but what I do know is that I haven't hit the mark. You know what I mean? And so I think that when you, you have to get disassociated from your work, you can't identify with it so much. So if your work doesn't hit the mark, you can't be, that's not an attack on you. And it also doesn't mean that you're no good. It just means that it didn't hit the mark. And so you just need, need to try again with something a little bit different. Um, and so I think, it, you know, you, you just kind of have to rest in the idea that you know that you have talent um, and be okay with the fact that, you know, you need to try something a different way. And it's part of the process. And it really is okay. Uh, and, but I think that that comes with, with a little bit of time and practice as well. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> I, you know, it, like I said, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, it's something that, like I said, when I was younger, I mean, even five, six years ago, when my mentor would ride my ass, I mean, I would leave those conversations just pretty much in tears. Now I'm like, you know what? I'm thick skinned enough that, you know, I'm okay with you telling me what I need to hear. It's like if I'm being a jackass, tell me. Um, and I need to know that because at the end of the day, like, it's not about me. It's about the success of the business. And if, you know, me being a jackass is going to be detrimental, then I need to know that my behavior is potentially putting, uh, you know, or even my work is putting the success of my company at risk. Mm-hmm. And I know, I mean, for me, it's like the idea, you know, that just what you said there is continuously improving, you know, and we can't improve unless we look at what we need, what, what's there to improve, you know? So then we're stuck. So if we want to get better and better, you've got to kind of take the bitter pill of hearing where and how. <laughs> so that's the Absolutely. other part. Yeah. Great. Uh, well, this has been amazing. Um, I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think that it's tapping into what is unique about them, what they're passionate about, because I think that's how they find their unique expression and what they're going to be able to give to the world. And I know that sounds a little bit spiritual, but, um, but I do think that's what makes each of us unique. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything you're up to? Um, they can go to our, my company domain, which is synergeticmedia.com. Um, and I can always be reached by email, ginger.bowman at synergeticmedia.com. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.